It's the week of February 14th, 2011. We're at the big, beautiful Moscone Center at San Francisco. Walking through a truly giant expo floor, hundreds or maybe thousands of people pass by, chatting and visiting presentation booths set up by big tech companies from around the world. Nearby, in a giant conference hall, row after row of portable, semi-comfortable chairs are lined up with TV monitors above so that people in the back can see what's happening all the way up on stage. Among the speakers lined up for the week are computer expert and author Bruce Schneier, physicist Michu Kaku, Deputy Secretary of Defense William Lin, and the 42nd President of the United States, Bill Clinton. This is RSA Conference 2011, one of the biggest industry events of the year. The place to be if you're in cybersecurity. I'm Sam Curry. I'm the Chief Security Officer at Cyber Reason and a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute. Sam Curry was at the 2011 conference naturally. As a senior executive at RSA at the time, he was busy organizing and shaking hands, probably too busy to actually enjoy any of the speeches. Among the wheeling and dealing, the snack bars and chatting with other CDOs and CSOs and listening to talks about this and that, there was hardly any time to think about anything else. It especially wasn't a good time for bad news. The first time I got wind something was happening, I was at RSA conference and we had an incident. An incident. Inconvenient, for sure, but probably nothing serious. We have incidents all the time. And um, it was uh, late night on the phone, being on the phone constantly with all the chaos of the show with some colleagues. And um, we pretty much contained the incident. With the incident contained, Sam went back to his more important business. The conference soon ended, and a couple of weeks passed. But not everything was completely back to normal. We had missed some code delivery for a client. It was very, very out of the ordinary. Dave Castignola, today the CRO at BugCrowd, was a VP at RSA in 2011. And then I had seen some network issues and some servers being taken offline, and that just immediately sent alarm bells up. Lots of employees started experiencing these same issues. Issues accessing data, communicating on RSA's network. It was more than your typical outage. You couldn't get out if you were on a corporate network and the VPN wasn't, probably wasn't delivering the content you were used to. And on the, the Friday night, the week before we announced, I had just had a terrible feeling all weekend long. And then I received a phone call uh, Monday morning uh, about uh, what was happening. That phone call was the beginning of the most chaotic month in Dave's career. Hi, and welcome to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life. I'm Ran Levy. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, or if you follow cybersecurity news, you'll know the kinds of things we 
typically focus on when a big hack occurs. The first question usually is, what's the damage? What machines were brought down? What data was taken? Who's affected and how? After that, we ask two questions in no particular order. Who did it and how they put it off? Was it Russian cybercriminals? A phishing email and lateral movement in a corporate network? The Chinese military with a zero-day vulnerability? Or Colonel Mustard in the hall with a knife? Far less emphasis is usually given to another component of every hack. The incident response. How the hacked entity deals once they realize what just happened to them. It's too bad, because incident response is just as important, just as dramatic as any other aspect of a hack. Think about Yahoo and Target ignoring repeated red flags. Think Equifax, which after losing the largest trove of personal data in history, offered just one year of free credit monitoring to Americans and put up a website which purported to tell you if you were affected, but didn't actually work. On the opposite end of the spectrum, think Maersk during NotPetya, or Saudi Aramco, which after 30,000 of their computers were destroyed by Shamoon, simply went out and bought 50,000 new hard drives on the spot. Nearly the entire world's available supply at the time, right off the factory floor. There are a lot of different ways an organization can respond to a hack, but when you're in the war room, it's hard to make the best, most logical decision. For the moment, you're at the center of the world, with media attention and jobs and money and a lot else on the line. It's this kind of pressure that can destroy the weak or bring out sides of people they didn't quite know were there. In early 2011, Sam Curry and Dave Castignola had no clue that they'd be thrust into one of these situations. That the kind of security professionals, the kind of men they believed themselves to be, would be put to the test. It all began on a Monday evening when an employee noticed sensitive data exiting from RSA servers. He saw this thing in transmission. It, it, the, the profile of the data stream didn't look right. It wasn't, it wasn't what it should have been on that port. And he, so he, he hit the big red button and shut down production, which was a brave move in itself. The whole company was put on pause, just in case. And that happened um, three or four days prior. The next day, there were lots of questions and very few answers. Evidently, something was wrong at RSA security, but exactly what was still unclear. Unclear until they discovered what data had left the system. We then hunted it down and we found an encrypted object. Okay, we opened it up, we found one of our encrypted objects. All right, we opened it up and we saw exactly what it was. It was uh, secret material related to SecureID. SecureID, RSA's flagship product. The exfiltration had been proactively interrupted partway through, but this was bad. We'd had three days to think about what if, what if, what if, 
and hopes rose and fell in those three days. It was really the Wednesday morning that we determined, yeah, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that had happened. It took us nearly three days to come to the conclusion that we had had a breach. Sam and Dave, upon hearing the news, had the same thought. I believe we were going out of business. If you're a defender fighting to protect your organization from cyber attackers, you must be successful ending attacks every single time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. Our future-ready attack platform gives defenders the wisdom to uncover, understand, and piece together multiple threats and the precision focus to end cyber attacks instantly. Cyber Reason. End cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. Sometimes, data breaches cause millions and millions of dollars in losses for a company. Usually, though, they don't cause an otherwise solid business to go under. RSA was not Yahoo, not Mt. Gox. They were a solidly run company with a good reputation and steady revenue. Their breach threatened to take that all away, not because they'd lose money or data, but because they'd lose trust. RSA were in the business of trust. RSA is a company that has been acquired twice in its history. It stands for Rivest, Shamir, and Edelman, the three, the three people who came up with the RSA algorithm that really enabled internet commerce in the late 70s. RSA Security specialized in public key cryptography, algorithms that ensured the right machines are talking to each other on networks. Take, for instance, their most well-known product, a little USB key fob with a screen called Secure ID. I used to joke I was the, at one point the CTO of the world's largest keychain manufacturer. Secure ID was a hardware two-factor authentication device with a screen that displayed numeric codes. The numbers on there change synchronously with the server in the background because of a shared secret. And so when you go to log into something, you can enter something you know, something you are, a password, for instance, or a fingerprint or whatever. And then you can add this thing, which represents, I have the token, the unique piece of hardware in the world that has the same numbers that match what the server on the back end uh, is expecting. And so the machines and systems can be reasonably sure it's me. And that was a little over 50% of the business at the time. Secure ID was the heart of RSA's business, but also a key component of the cybersecurity of organizations worldwide. Everybody who cared about multi-factor authentication had these RSA tokens. I mean, they were just totally ubiquitous. That's Andy Greenberg, journalist at Wired magazine. This week, we've partnered with him and Wired to co-release the RSA story. He spoke with our senior producer, Nate Nelson. You know, if you're a, a secure ID customer, you trust those little tokens. You believe that they offer a kind of, you know, trusted and, uh, I mean, you kind of assume almost unhackable layer of protection. And yet something that happens entirely outside of your view, off of your network, 
uh, this hack of Secure ID on RSA's network has totally compromised a really crucial layer of security on your network. And this breach said everyone using that, from governments to uh, you know financial institutions and um, secret organizations, everyone using that suddenly couldn't trust who potentially was connecting to them. There was just one bit of information to save them, a detail that wasn't clear yet and made all the difference in the world. And the question was, did they have the key? Could they have decrypted it, that inner container? Because if you've got something encrypted, no breach. The attacker had stolen a safe, but needed the combination to crack it. If they had the combo, they had the safe. If they didn't have the code, the safe was useless, as if no breach had occurred in the first place. A lot depended on whether or not they had that key. To be clear, RSA didn't have evidence that their attackers had stolen the encryption key. They didn't actually know if they were compromised, and thousands of companies around the world were compromised along with them, or if nothing of consequence had actually happened at all. It left them with an incredibly difficult choice to make, where each choice carried immense but completely different risks. As an analogy, consider our Malicious Life senior producer, Nate Nelson. Nate is ugly. Wait, what? It's too bad. He's just got the kind of face that makes you want to look away. Gosh, good thing I got a job in podcasts then. Is Nate better off now that I told him about his weird face? It probably made him sad, but maybe now we can address the problem, get plastic surgery, or at least invest in some ski masks. Or was Nate better off before? He was probably much happier that way, going through life in blissful ignorance of why he can never get a girlfriend. You know, all these years, I just assumed it was because of my terrible personality. RSA security may or may not have lost the keys to Secure ID. It was Schrodinger's hack. Two equally plausible alternate realities were ahead, and they didn't know which was true. That meant they had a choice. In timeline number one, they'd assume the worst. They'd disclose the breach and face the consequences. Let's start with the media. Um, the media is unforgiving, and rightly so in many cases. It was not going to go well. It was going to look extremely bad. That would have affected every deal, every renewal, um, every financial metric the company depended on. But we were part of a bigger company. It was going to affect them too. So we, we were like a billion-dollar entity, in fact, just shy of that, in a larger over $20 billion company, EMC, this was ugly. This was really ugly. It'd be a nightmare. And what if a week after disclosing to the public, they discovered that the hackers hadn't actually obtained the Secure ID private key? All that for nothing. On the other hand, if they didn't disclose what happened... The risk associated with it, though, was potentially enormous because... You know, something like 80 million people who had highly sensitive and, and important positions used us to prove they were who they said they were in their own operations. 
the fear that could cause and the genuine risk, that was terrifying. It was a chilly, cloudy Wednesday morning in Bedford, Massachusetts, on March the 16th. In a conference room at RSA HQ, Sam Curie and the execs at RSA convened to consider the decision in front of them. Senior management were sitting around and the question, what do we do, uh, came up. And, I, and I'm not going to out anybody. One person said, we don't have to say anything. And it was because there were no contracts, no rules, no laws that said we had to. Could RSA have kept the whole thing quiet? Most cybersecurity disclosure laws are pretty new, yes, but it's difficult to imagine that working. It's possible they could have gotten away with it. It's clearly not the right thing to do. Right. And I, I think also not the right business thing to do. And they would have gotten slammed for it sooner or later. I think they would have been facing like serious criticisms or possibly a, a big lawsuit. It was at that suggestion that an older gentleman, parted gray hair, a little hunch in his shoulders, butted in. As CEO of the company, Art Covialo had the ultimate say as to how RSA was going to respond to this crisis. What kind of company they were going to be. Employees later referred to what he did next as an art attack. He swore and said we're going to do the right thing and we shifted gears. The decision was final. Every individual in that room realized what the implications were. What they were about to do would initiate a chain of events that would very possibly cause the end of their company, a company that stood for 30 years. Sam was as scared as anyone, but he understood what had to be done. Nate, I have to share this. 20 years prior, uh, there were two brands I wanted to work for one day and thought were unattainable, and one of them was RSA. And I spent... 16 years trying to get there and eventually I came on board and ran product the product organization and um, went through a few roles over my time there and ended up as CTO and I was incredibly proud to have made it there and to be among the best uh, art used to say we stand on the shoulders of giants I felt like I was responsible for that and I remember when we went to disclose I felt okay if we're going down we're going down right I should tell you, Nate, it was 21 hours from the decision that we had had a breach. From the moment we knew we had a breach to deciding to go public was five minutes. And it was 21 hours from that moment until we did. So we can tell you what it was like to suddenly rush people to the battlements, but it was yeah. less than a day. And why did it need to be less than a day? Uh, there was a sense of urgency about this. There was a... It, Maybe the adrenaline and the energy we were just talking about, maybe the terror around it. It wasn't like something that we felt. There was no rules that said we had to, but it felt like you don't dither over stuff like this. True. Although when you write a, a podcast about uh, enough corporate hacks, uh, this kind of thing stands out as a bit unusual. So it, it, was it by virtue of the leadership of the company, the culture of the company? Well, the, um, art, the art attack helped, right? And uh, I, 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 think, I think part of it was culture and that we were a security company and there was nothing like this before. And arguably very little 
exactly like this after. Um, later, I think we came up with a whole bunch of like, you know, how should you do this stuff? But I, even now I'm, I'm amazed that look, Dave got the call on Monday. Something was wrong. He was, you were there. What Wednesday, Dave? I flew in uh, Thursday morning, Sam. Thursday morning. Dave Castignola, in all this, was half a country away. My phone call on Thursday morning, March 17th, which was, we need you, we're announcing this today, bring a big suitcase, you're going to be here a while, you're going to be involved in the response with us, and we can talk more when you get here. But I just remember the words in my head, failure is not an option. As head of the communications arm of the company, Dave flew to RSA HQ in Massachusetts from his home in Michigan. I knew that this was dire. In fact, I called my father-in-law up and said, you know, um, I said, Richard, I need you to come to the house and you need to help the family. I'm going to be gone for a long time. And I said to him, when I come back, I'm not sure if my company is going to be in business. Um, <laughs> it was, I could feel it to my core I didn't even have a chance to say goodbye to my wife. You know, I left and she was out someplace. I had to rush home, pack my bag, and I was off to the airport. And in that time between uh, getting to the airport on a plane from Detroit to Boston, I downloaded and read three books on crisis management. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew this was a crisis beyond anything I'd ever dealt with. The flight was only a couple hours. The drive out to Bedford, 30 minutes more. He arrived at the office late in the afternoon. The energy in the building was unlike it had ever been before. My first meeting in a very, you know, not very big conference room full of many people, we had to stop the meeting after a few minutes because, you know, there were a few people weeping and crying. And they were shaken. And, you know, I said, hey, let's, let's pause real quick, get some waters. We're going to be in here for a while this evening. And I had people out in the hall just like, you know, grabbing me saying, are we going to survive this? And, you know, I didn't know if we were going to survive, but of course I told everybody we are going to get through this. You know, we had to keep the, the strong face for everybody, but uh, everybody was beyond rattled, beyond rattled. Employees made last minute scrambles, but there was only so much they could do. The announcement was about to occur in just a few minutes. You guys had had all of these very sad meetings and... By, by the way, Nate, I, I, I don't think sad is the right word. I think terrified. It's not sadness. In, in the, uh, when I think back, not just how I felt afterwards, but how I felt in the moment, it was terror. As the big hand passed 12 and 4 p.m. became 4.01 p.m., they released the news. The whole world would now know what happened at RSA. Everyone in the building braced themselves. There's few times in your life when you realize you're staring at, at, a, at, a, at a monster. It's bigger than you. Way bigger. It was time.
crazy. It was just mayhem. That's it for part one of the RSA Breach story. A big thank you to Sam Curry and Dave Castignola. As always, our website is malicious.life, where we upload all of the transcripts of the episodes, and our Twitter is at maliciouslife or at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. My email for feedback, ideas, and everything else is ran at ranlevy.com. Cyber Reason's Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Nate Nelson is our senior producer, sound design by Benoha Bali. Thanks to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.